couple of years ago, while I was uh, interim pastoring at another church, I was uh, taking a prospective pastor out to dinner on the west side of Chicago, and during the course of our conversation, he was telling me of some of the churches where he had put his name uh, in an attempt to find a pastorate. And one of them was a church made up almost entirely of Chinese folk. And uh, they were talking to him about the issue of church discipline. And they were lamenting a problem that was occurring in the church. And they sort of asked uh, my friend here, what exactly should we do in this situation? And so my friend said to them, well, uh, Matthew 18 gives very clear instructions on what to do. But upon hearing this, these leaders of this church said very firmly to him, that this would not be possible. Their explanation is that when Christ gave these instructions, he was not aware of the Chinese concept of shame, or he never would have given these instructions. For a believer to confront a sinning brother would violate the Chinese way, they reasoned, and it could never work among Chinese people. So my friend asked, well, then what would you do? What would you do? And uh, uh, they said to him, the more appropriate course of action in the Chinese church was for those who had been hurt by the sinful actions of the sinning brother to withdraw their membership and hope that their absence would shame the offender into repentance. Now this story takes place outside of our immediate context and it's very easy for us to see the problems here. Uh, it's more like a hypothetical diversion for you because it doesn't seem real. It's not a conversation you had. And you're probably all sitting here today saying, say what? <laughs> really? You really think that this, what seems to a strange cultural hang-up, can justify the absolute reversal of what the Bible says about church discipline? That's just wrong. The fact is... We are all susceptible to this very kind of thinking when our own cultures come into a collision course with the teaching of Scripture. And when that happens, we all tend at some level to say something like, well, Jesus couldn't really have meant that, or Paul must have been speaking to his, his own culture. He didn't mean those kinds of things to occur, say, here in America. And so we end up being just as manipulative with the Christian scriptures as these Oriental believers were in their context. Tonight we'll be looking at a, pack, a passage that much of the world takes in stride uh, as, as sensible Christian teaching, but a teaching that does not comport well with the Western progressive and enlightened society and what we would expect the Bible to say. And so our tendency this evening will be to take this passage and make it say less than, other than, or perhaps even completely opposite what it actually says. And while the specific context of the role of women in the church is at issue tonight, I want to do something bigger than just talk about that. So men, you've got some listening to do too. It's not just here for the women. The bigger message of this evening is this. Do not let the spirit of the age determine what your home will look like. Don't let the spirit of the age determine what your home's going to look like. You're in Titus chapter 2, 
and we're going to continue this really is a, a sort of a mini-series within the series, uh, Titus 2, 1 through 10. Uh, two weeks ago, remember I mentioned on Mother's Day, I don't like to address the women on Mother's Day. Seems a little bit cruel, something to do like this. So I talked about men being the best possible men that you can be as the best possible Mother's Day gift that you can give uh, to your wife or mother, whoever, whatever woman happens to be in your life. But this evening... We have to turn to the second part of this section here, and that is the, the address of women, older women and younger women. So let's read again these first 10 verses of chapter 2. Uh, this last week, last time we talked about his instructions to men, tonight his instructions to women, and next week to finish out our time, uh, we'll talk about the last two verses, uh, which are addressed to slaves, but I'll expand that here to to employees. So let's read these first 10 verses again as we uh, look at this uh, material tonight. Titus 2, 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, or enslaved to wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things, showing themselves an example of good deeds with purity and sound doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will not be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Urge also bondservants to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the gospel of our God, our Savior, in every respect. So we'll be dealing tonight with verses 3 through 5. I thought it would be good to keep in our minds the whole of this context here, Paul is not just giving random details here about what he thinks a good family should look like, uh, details that perhaps might come across rather patriarchal, puritanical, even downright prudish. He's offering firstly in the, verses, the words of Titus 1.11, God's solution to the rampant problem of ruined families. And secondly, the last verse we read tonight, God's plan for the successful spread of the Christian gospel. Follow the rules and the instructions here in these first 10 verses, and both of these things will happen. Families will be strengthened, established, the gospel will accelerate. The church is endlessly in search of these two things, right? Strong families and the spread of the gospel. The fact is, we often look right past Paul's simple answer to these concerns and say, really can't be that simple. There's got to be something more than what we just read tonight. Some event that we can organize, some rally, some, some help-self-help help, some help, self help video or the like. Something other than this. This seems so prosaic, so antiquated, so quaint. And yet, as Paul's grand solutions to these two timeless concerns in the church, weak families and a weak gospel, he gives an impossibly simple plan. Men need to be tied as to men. Women need to be tied as to women. 
and employees need to be Titus 2 employees. So let's look together this evening at the second of these blocks of verses that Paul has for us, his instructions to women. Like the previous section, Paul begins with instructions for older women, which is a designation which we said has probably more to do with life experience than with any specific age. For Paul, the line between younger and older was when one's children begin to leave the home and establish homes of their own. Sorry, Heather. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just what Paul said. Don't, don't shoot me. <laughs> Rendering this passage even more uncomfortable for us is the nature of the instruction itself. Verses 1 and 2 and 6 to 8, in which Paul addresses men, uh, he gives directly to the men. Uh, Paul is an older man. Titus is an older man. And so he goes, he just plows right in and talks to the men directly. In this verse here, he says, he, sa he says, Titus, you need to train older women to say these things to younger women. It's easier for a younger woman to take these kind of instructions from another woman, much harder to hear them from a man. These kinds of instructions from a man come across as self-serving, even a bit chauvinistic at times, and for that reason, they come best from the lips of another woman. And yet it falls to me, a man, this evening, to detail Paul's instructions. So if I can speak this morning, if I may, to older women specifically, I need some backup today. I need some backup, and you're the only ones that can give it to me. So, uh, so uh, let's go ahead and take a look at what Paul has to say. There's an assumption here, one that's not spelled out, but one that is necessary to the success of the passage, is that older women and younger women need to be in conversation with one another. Uh, Paul doesn't actually come out and say that, but it's an assumption, because Older women need to be teaching younger women certain things, and so there has to be some sort of an intergenerational intersection between older women and younger women. You need to be in each other's lives. Because the pastor can't do this by himself, or even at all, when it comes to women's issues at times. It's very easy, I think, for us to reach retirement age as older women and start to think, I've put in my time, now it's my turn to be on the receiving end of ministry, but this sentiment does not fit well with Paul, what Paul has to say here in Titus chapter 2. Paul seems to indicate in his instructions to old men and old women that Christians never retire. The focus and scope of your ministry in the church will change over time, but the fact of ministry remains constant in Paul's instruction the various demographic groups that he dresses here in chapter 2. Now some of you older ladies perhaps may be sitting here saying, I would just love to be a part of the lives of the next generation, but I feel like I'm shut out. And that happens, right? I've even tried to push my way un in un uninvited, and they pushed me away. And it's easy to blame the younger generation for this, and I'd be foolish to suggest that younger women do not bear at least some of the blame here, as something of a middler myself right between old and young, I find myself dismayed as my own elders, one by one, are 
starting to pass away. They're retiring and moving away. Some of them have actually passed away, and my pool of mentors is starting to shrink. It seems only now that I'm finally discovering what, in my own youthful pride, I did not see that I desperately needed the wisdom of the gray hairs. And so, if you're young here today, I beg of you to learn this lesson before you get to be on the brink of becoming an older man or an older woman. You need godly older women in your lives, young women. You need them more than you need the pooled experience of all your peers. You need them more than all the collected information you can get from Google or Facebook or whatever it is that you happen to be able to uh, consult online. And certainly far more than you can possibly get through Comcast, right? I can't stress this point enough. The older women in the church are not perfect, and none of them would claim to be. But imperfect as they are, they offer a wealth of wisdom that you simply cannot live without. So tap into that. But all that being said, it's not the younger women who receive Paul's primary instruction. It's rather the older women. Paul anticipates that older women may win an audience with their younger counterparts by doing certain things, by cultivating and perfecting the qualities listed here in verse 3. This is the point of the particle that starts verse 4. So... For this reason, for this reason, in this way, you will earn an invitation into the lives of the younger women. So if I may be bold to suggest this, the first order of business may not to be com to complain about the young Christian girls that don't have any time for their elders. First order of business may be to get down to work to discovering what might be in your life that results in the younger generation ignoring you. And Paul lists four things. He says, first of all, in verse 3, you need to be reverent in your behavior. Reverent in your behavior. And both of these terms are interesting. Now, the first term translated here as reverent literally means to conduct oneself as a priestess. Now, Paul's obviously not saying here that uh, we should uh, stoop to idolatry here. But the idea here is that older women earn respect by acting in a dignified manner with a bearing that compels, for instance, men to stand when they walk into the room. Be dignified. The second term, behavior, is also interesting as well. So be reverent in your behavior. It actually lit literally means in your attire. I think the term means more than this, and hence the translation here reverent in your behavior, but there is perhaps no more graphic a picture of undignified behavior than an older person who tries too hard to dress and act like a younger woman. Now this advice is exactly the opposite of what the advertisers of our day are trying to tell us. Even some churches are trying to tell us. These sources tell elders to keep up with the times, to stay young, stay hip, to stay abreast of the progressive uh, trends and fads of our society, or as one cruise line advertises, be a teenager again. Otherwise, you'll become irrelevant. That's the concern. But Paul says the opposite. He says that real relevance, real relevance, 
comes in the dignity of aged advisors rooted not in the shifting sands of culture, but in the bedrock of biblical virtue, even though our culture may think of them as prosaic. So first of all, be reverent in your behavior. Second, he says, don't be a malicious gossip. Don't be a slanderer, if I can use another word here. Unlike the terms in the previous phrase, this term is a very familiar one to all of us. You probably even know it in Greek. The term is diabolos, okay? the devil. Okay? This is his name, the slanderer, the accuser, as he's sometimes called. Okay? Don't be like the devil. In what way? Don't be a gossip. And perhaps Paul uses this startling term, the don't be devilish, just to highlight the awful effects of gossip on the, on the church and on society. Of course, gossip is a struggle that we all face, but we must not ignore the fact that in the scriptures there are few vices that are, are, are more uniquely associated with women in the scripture than this one. In 1 Timothy 3, a gossiping wife is a primary point of disqualification for an officer. In 1 Timothy 5, gossip is the greatest of Paul's concerns for women who have been widowed. Here in Titus 2 and also in 1 Timothy 3, gossip is a primary reason for loss of influence in society and church. And no vice distinguishes a delightful widow from a burdensome one according to Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 5, other than gossip. So do you want an audience with younger women and a voice in their lives? First thing, well, second thing that Paul says, don't be a gossip. Just don't. Stop being a gossip. Number three, Paul's third concern is perhaps a surprise and one that perhaps we don't associate with older women. Don't be addicted to wine. Some suggest that this may have been a problem that was unique to Crete, uh, that there was, they had very poor water, perhaps, and they had a little bit more wine necessary to, to, uh, to, uh, to, to cleanse the water, and so there was an abundance of wine available, or perhaps, perhaps the thought is that stay-at-home women would have access to a sort of a secret stash of wine. Whatever the case may be, it goes without saying that wine will exacerbate all of the issues foregoing. You will not be dignified. You will not be reverent in your behavior or in your attire, nor will you uh, uh, refrain from being a malicious gossip if you are drunk. Drunken people are universally less dignified and given to gossip than sober people. Number four, then. Paul entreats older women to teach what is good. And it's a temptation here, and many will say here, this is model what is good, uh, which is, of course, a great virtue and something we ought to do. But that's not exactly what, that's not what Paul says. He actually says, teach. He says, teach. So Paul seems to be urging women to be proactive in using words as they instruct young ladies, especially on topics that might be uncomfortable for men to address. While this is not a point of the passage, I'd like to appeal personally to the older women to fill that role, not only for, uh, in, in general, but also for the relief of your pastor, who is a young man with a young wife. He needs, like I said, needs backup 
and you're the ones who can provide it for him. So to summarize, Paul asked older women to be dignified at their age, to staunchly resist gossip, and take seriously their role as mentors and teachers. And quite frankly, in those words, Paul is turning on its head the advice of our progressive society, which tells the elderly in so many ways that the path to relevance is looking and acting younger, being in the know, and keeping up with the fads and fashions. But remember, Paul's message is broader than just an address to women. He's saying this, don't let the spirit of the age to determine what your home will look like. And we do well to remember this because Paul's advice is about to become even more radical and out of step with society because the progressive society of first century Crete and also ours in 21st century America was, is, is intensified. So what radical curriculum is it that the older women are supposed to use when they teach the younger women? Well, we find this here in the unfolding verses. They are supposed to teach the young women to do seven things. There's three that come in pairs and then one that's added on the end. First of all, older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. comes in a pair. This perhaps seems a bit mundane, something of a duh statement, but in reality there's nothing more difficult for a woman, as you know, in this post-fall world than to live her life according to the best interests, not of herself, but of a man and of some children. That's the substance of the curse, right? A woman's desire will be to have her husband's opportunities, his abilities, his authority, his celebrity, but she'll never quite achieve them. But what's sometimes lost is that the curse is not so much that she doesn't get what she so desperately craves, rather the curse is that she craves them in the first place. The essence of the curse for women is that she cannot fathom, that we cannot fathom that her greatest possible satisfaction is found in helping her man and loving him. This is something that needs to be taught to young women because it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come without intense resistance. Perhaps even now, <laughs> as I speak, there is a bit of resistance here as I say it. But how very blessed is the woman who discovers early on in her marriage under the counsel of godly older women that the biblical path to achieving her best interests is for her to help him to achieve his. Number two, older women are to teach younger women, secondly, to conduct themselves sensibly and in purity. Again, a pair. This term translated here, sensible, is the same term that we saw in verse 2, where older men are encouraged to be sensible or self-controlled, same thing in 1 Timothy 3, 2. It's a requirement of elders. They are to be self-controlled. So we're, we're acquainted with this term here. In those texts, we used a variety of English terms to communicate this sense as being measured, reserved, and temperate. And these are the terms that we used when we looked through this uh, word before in chapter 1. The term here carries the sense here uh, though some have suggested by pairing it with the term purity that we perhaps combine them together, temperate and pure, 
to come up with a word, perhaps something more like modest, which is a translation that you'll find in many, many modern translations. Uh, matches the larger discussion of 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, I desire that in every place women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Same word that we used here, uh, citing examples that range from jewelry to hairstyle. Now I know that for some, the term modesty can bring rather negative ideas to mind. Perhaps overblown rules about very specific things about female attire. And be assured, I'm not planning to go there. Still, I'm not prepared to abandon the idea uh, of modesty and reserve in the conduct and appearance of younger women because, frank, quite frankly, it's a major emphasis in Paul. So without offering any specific examples, which I'm neither qualified nor comfortable speaking about, let me offer to you a simple abstract definition of what it means in principle to be modest. I'll borrow from Philip Towner, who is a, a commentator. Modesty is self-control. It is the cardinal virtue that defines a modest wife. It takes into its scope behavior and dress that are able to protect the honor of her husband. It manifests itself above all in dignified conduct characterized by restraint of the passions and of urges that might jeopardize fidelity to her own husband. Again, not trying to add specificity beyond what the scriptures say here, but in a nutshell, the idea here is that older women should promote in younger women the kinds of fashion choices that proclaim purity rather than availability. Number three, third pair here, that doesn't seem perhaps in English to be a pair, but in Greek you can actually see that it is a pair. Uh, perhaps it doesn't appear to be a pair to us either because they don't seem to be easily paired. It says here, younger women are to have industry at home and to be kind. Okay. So they're to be workers at home and also kind. The fact that these terms are paired together seems a little bit unusual to us until we recognize the context of a first century home. Uh, the woman of a first century Roman home was something of a household manager. She not only was in charge of her own children, but also a, usually a, 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 group, a, a, a group of slaves or domestic servants that would serve the household. And so she was, in fact, the term is used here, a, a house despot. Okay? She was in charge of the house, and she was the ruler of the house, which included not only her children, but also uh, the, the, the domestics uh, that would be around. So this would explain, then, why kindness comes in, right? Okay, because there are people who are decidedly lower than she is, people that she could perhaps treat with contempt, and children as well, right? We can sometimes treat our children with contempt, not only the slaves. Uh, so her kids, she's supposed to treat her children and also the other folks within her household with kindness. Naturally, there's a disconnect between the first century and the 21st century, so perhaps we don't see that as much. Uh, so there's not a real perfect correspondence, but we can't ignore it either. I think it still has some applicational value for us. So what is it? Some perhaps suggest that the application is simple, simply that women should be industrious and kind no matter what their situation happens to be, whether that be at home 
or somewhere else. There's much to commend this understanding because uh, the Titus woman is overseeing uh, a staff of people that included women who were working outside of their homes, quite frankly. means the passage does not restrict women absolutely to housekeeping as their sole vocation. Proverbs 31 tells us the same thing. She does to seem to have a, quite a bit of work that takes place outside the home. But the emphasis on the home here suggests a bit more than just, uh, you know, you can do whatever you, you, you can be industrious wherever you are. While women are surely not forbidden to work outside the home, the suggestion here is that a woman should still think of the management of her own home as her primary role in life, her primary role in life. Remember, the promise, most promising source of dignity for a woman, we saw earlier in God's created order, is not in her own accomplishments, grand as they might be, but in helping her family, specifically her husband. And so it is that we find that the greatest achievements of the Proverbs 31 woman, which are formidable, all serve the fact that her husband, the climax of that chapter is that her husband is known in the gates. So while the culture does give us reason to exercise care in our interpretation of the text, it by no means allows us to relegate this to the dustbin of irrelevancy. There remains here a distinctively Christian worldview that runs counter to the prevailing spirit of our age. And we do well to understand that we can only apprehend what it means to be in the world and not of it when we think in these terms. Only then can the word of God, rather than the spirit of the age, determine what our homes will look like. There's one final skill that older women are to teach younger women, and that is how to be submissive to their own husbands. At this point, we might be tempted to say, Mark, Mark now you're just piling on here. <laughs> you're just piling on at this point. I could, and I could simply divert the complaint to Paul and say, oh, that's what he said. I don't really care for it, but he said it, not me. But the fact is, what Paul says is right. It's scripture. And it deserves a defense. If, in fact, you are offended by Paul this evening and what he says, it's very likely that one of two reasons comes to the fore. Either, one, you don't have a husband, or perhaps you have less than an ideal husband. Don't, don't all of you? Or, number two, you've bought into the theory propagated nearly universally in today's culture, that it is degrading, immoral, and even abusive to insist that the primary role of a woman is to help a man. That her primary place of service is in the home. That her appearance needs to be conscientiously modest for the sake of her husband. That she needs to submit to her husband. So let's look at these. If you have no husband, or perhaps you've lost your husband, been abandoned by your husband, abused by your husband even, or live currently with a poor husband, you have my sympathy. I realize that this sermon may be painful to you, and you may be raising all kinds of, uh, of responses to this and say, but that's not true for me. I grieve with you. I apologize for bringing up a difficult subject, but I can't escape the fact that these verses are part of a normative block of material written by God for the whole church. And I can't simply ignore it 
on account of the pain that it might bring to a few of you. If indeed, though, that you are convinced of the truth of these verses this, this evening and long for a situation in you, which you receive biblical reciprocation from a godly husband, you are perhaps in the best possible situation to fulfill all of the commands in this passage. To teach younger women in immature and otherwise deficient relationships. Teach them to do these things because it is in this crucible that God accomplishes his purpose. Do this, verse 5 concludes, and the word of God will succeed. It's not a guarantee, of course, that acting in accordance with these verses will convert your husband automatically. There's not even a guarantee that life will improve. But it is a statement that is the normal pattern of God to use this kind of behavior as a means to the success of his word. In the words of Peter, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them don't obey this word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see her respectful and pure conduct. So don't let your adorning be external only, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but rather let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. This is what God uses to convert men. Now if by chance you have bought into the theory propagated nearly universally in today's culture that it is degrading or immoral or even abusive to insist that the primary role of a woman is to help a man, that her primary place of service is in the home, that her appearance needs to be conscientiously modest and that she needs to submit to her husband, I have but one bit of, of advice for you. And that was the thesis of our sermon today. Stop letting the spirit of this age determine what your home will look like and instead start following the dictates of the word of God to determine what your home will look like. And if you do, if you do, I believe that you will eventually enjoy the Eureka discovery that the theories of the present age are not only wrong, but to use the words of Paul in chapter 1, absolutely destructive of whole households. And with that discovery, that very positive discovery, there will come the realization that I should obey these verses not only because they're there, but because there is no more perfect or benevolent set of instructions and guidelines to be found anywhere for an excellent marriage and a happy home than these. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word to us, even when it cuts deep and runs counter, perhaps, to the thoughts that we have. Lord, I ask that each one of us here today would conduct our homes, our families, in a way that corresponds to your specific instructions to us. Lord, help us not to be tugged, as we so often are, by the spirit of the age that says what the Bible has to say is horrible, patriarchal, prudish. 
And Lord, help us to recognize that these are your formula for a sound household, for a sound home, and for the success of your gospel. And Lord, I ask that we would take these uh, instructions to heart, no matter our demographic, whether we are men who received our instruction last time, women who received our instruction tonight, or employees who will receive our instruction in next week's sermon, so that the Word of God would be successful, that it would be adorned by our respective behavior, so that the gospel would prove successful. In your name we pray. Amen.